0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Fort St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for part two of He Shall Reign. All right, well, as I've already said, we're in the middle of a special Christmas series that we've called He Shall Reign. And it's a four-part series. And so in the four-part series, what we're doing is we're looking at the incredible story of Christ's birth from four different vantage points. It's the same awesome story, but it's amazing to me as I've been studying this, how there's so many different principles that we can learn and we can apply to our lives, with, um, no matter whose vantage point, we're reading. And so last week, we looked at Christ's birth from Matthew chapter one and two. Today, we're going to look at. Um, the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1. This Thursday, Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the Christmas story from Isaiah 9, a a 700 B.C. prophecy about the coming Messiah. And then, of course, next Sunday, a week from today, December 27th, I'm going to wrap the series up, and I'm going to share the Christmas story once again from Luke, but this time from chapter 2. And so... When we're all done, hopefully we'll have a very full understanding of the true story of Christmas. So let's start this way. After 400 years of silence from heaven, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in between Malachi, written around 400, 440 B.C., to Matthew, Mark, Um, and Luke and John, the Gospels, okay? In between that time, for 400 years, God was silent, and he broke his silence through an angel, an angel named Gabriel. So Gabriel shows up a few times in the scriptures. If you remember, in the Old Testament, Gabriel appears to an old prophet named Daniel, and he gives Daniel, in my opinion, the greatest uh, prophecy, In the entire Old Testament, 538 B.C., Gabriel appears to Daniel and he tells Daniel when the Messiah is going to arrive on planet Earth. It's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And by the way, we're going to study it in depth on Sunday, January the 10th, apply it to our lives and then have communion afterwards. So I'm excited about that. So in the the Old Testament, Daniel, um, um, Gabriel appeared to Daniel but now, in the New Testament, he appears again. This time he appears to a priest, and the priest's name is Zacharias. And we don't have time in our chapter today uh, to read through the whole story of Gabriel's appearance and um, announcement to Zacharias, but suffice it to say um, that Gabriel told Zacharias that his wife, Elizabeth, was going to get pregnant, his um, older wife, <laughs> And the reason I say older is because what you need to know is that Zacharias and Elizabeth were somewhere between 60 and 80 years old. Now, how many of you guys know that 60 to 80-year-old couples don't have babies? You can't, right? Biologically, you can't unless God shows up. And that's what God did. And he showed up. And sure enough, Elizabeth became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And it was a miracle, And so this son, of course, grows up. He becomes a mighty prophet. He goes out into the desert areas. He clothes himself with camel hair. He eats locusts and wild honey. He prepares the way of the Lord. Anybody know his name? Go ahead and shout it out if you know his name. It's John the Baptist. And so God was moving once again in Israel. After 400 years of silence, God is moving once again. And God's got another announcement through Gabriel and this announcement is going to be the best of all. So we're going to pick it up now in verse 26. Luke 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, okay, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth somehow was related to Mary. And so Mary's 15, 16 years old. Elizabeth, 60 to 80, we're not sure Okay, and so in the sixth month, of the angel, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named what? Nazareth, not Bethlehem, that's later. He goes down to Nazareth. And so God dispatched Gabriel from the unimaginable glory of heaven all the way down to this obscure little town in the region of Galilee, this town called Nazareth. Nazareth was about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. If you remember your New Testament geography, down in the south, you have Judea. Then in the middle, you have Samaria. And then on top, you've got Galilee. And so the Jews that lived down in Judea around Jerusalem, um, well, they didn't even associate with the Samaritans because the Samaritans were half Jewish, half Assyrian. They called them a mixed breed, in fact, they wouldn't even go through their land. They would cross the Jordan River and go up uh, to whenever they were traveling to Galilee. The Jews down in Jerusalem had nothing to do with the Samaritans and they also looked down on the Jews up in the Galilee around Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and those other cities. The reason they looked down on those Jews is because the Jews up in Galilee associate, uh, associated with Gentiles and that was not kosher, and so Nazareth, well, you know, Nazareth didn't have the best reputation, if you're talking to a Jew from Jerusalem. In fact, it had a really bad reputation. So bad that later on, when Jesus started his three-year ministry, and they wanted, the disciples wanted to introduce Nathanael to Jesus, they said, hey, Nathanael, come meet Jesus from Nazareth. You guys remember what Nathanael said? In John 1 46, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? right? So it had a bad reputation. At the time of Jesus' birth, it had about 15,000 people at the time when Mary was living there. And so we know the greatest person who ever walked the planet came from Nazareth. Look at verse 27 now. Gabriel comes to this town, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man, whose name was Joseph, and Joseph was of the house of what? That's very important, especially when you come Thursday night. Both Mary and Joseph were from the house of David. But specifically, Gabriel goes at the end of verse 27 to this virgin, and her name was Mary. And so Mary's a big deal in Luke's gospel. We get a lot of details about Christ's birth from Dr. Luke. Luke. And a lot of the details have to do with with Mary. And sometimes you wonder, you know, how does a guy like Luke get so many details about the Christmas story? Well, can you guys turn back to the left one page to Luke chapter one, verse one? We're gonna find out where did Luke get his information for his gospel. Okay, so Luke chapter one, verse one. Luke is writing to this guy called Theophilus. And he says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those, look, look, look at this please, from the, what's the word? Beginning. All the way back to Christ's birth here. Just as those who from the beginning were, another very important word, go ahead and say it, I witnesses. If you're on the fence concerning Christianity, you need to know that Christianity is not based on fairy tales. It's based on the account of eyewitnesses. And Dr. Luke interviewed all these eyewitnesses from the beginning, from the time of Christ's birth. And so he goes on and he talks to Theophilus about how this is where he got his record. And so where did Luke get all the details for the Christmas story? Well, one person we know, if you're taking notes, here's your first point. We believe Luke interviewed Mary to give us so many details about the birth of Christ. Mary. The reason scholars believe this is because Luke, we just read it, he said, from the beginning, okay, speaking of Christ's birth, eyewitnesses. Okay, Joseph was not around in AD 60 when Luke wrote his gospel. He'd already died. Zacharias and and Elizabeth definitely already passed away. They were 60 to 80 when when Christ was born. And so who's the only eyewitness you can think of that's left to give all the details? Mary. And so um, how or, or when did Luke interview Mary? Okay, so just think about this for a second. When 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 Mary gave birth to Jesus, most scholars believe she was 15 to 16 years old. Okay? When Jesus died on the cross, if you do the math, that would put Mary at 48 to 49 years old. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke around A.D. 60. So if you do all that math, here's what you find out, that Mary was in her mid-70s when Luke interviewed her for all these details. And I want you to picture in your mind an elderly Mary sitting with Dr. Luke, and she's thinking back decades about all these details concerning the greatest birth in the history of mankind, the birth of the Messiah. It was such a wonderful time in her life. And I'm sure Luke, because he's so thorough, he wrote Luke and Acts, you know, those Both those books are very thorough, and so Luke is so thorough, he asks Mary a lot of questions, and I'm wondering if during the interview, if Mary teared up when she thought about her sweetheart, Joseph. We know that when Jesus was 12 years old, Joseph was on the scene, but after that, the guy just kind of disappears. So again, scholars assume that that Joseph died prematurely at an early age, and that must have broke Mary's heart, please don't raise your hand. But those of you who know, um, those of you who've lost loved ones, those of you who have lost specifically a husband or a wife, you know the heartache involved in that. And so Mary has to think back of that difficult time when when Joseph died. And of course, the firstborn son, when the daddy dies, he's got to step up and be the man of the house. And that's Jesus. We know from um, Matthew and Mark that Joseph was a carpenter. We also know from Mark specifically that Jesus was a carpenter, and so Jesus was the apprentice of Joseph, his dad. He learned carpentry, and so Jesus became the man of the house during that very difficult time in Mary's life. But specifically concerning the interview that we're looking at here in Luke chapter 1, it's a wonderful time in Mary's life because she's in her one-year betrothal period, with the man of her dreams, with Joseph, a man that she loved dearly. Now, one of the things, I love this. I've taught this many times in the last 11 years, and I love it whenever we get here in the scriptures. But one of the things that a young Jewish man would normally do during the one-year betrothal period is he would get a place ready to live for after the wedding ceremony. And normally what he would do is he'd go back and add an extension to his father's house. And so we assume that Joseph, during this one-year betrothal period, was adding an extension to his dad's house um, there in Nazareth. Now, of course, we know that all that was Um, temporarily um, interrupted late in Mary's pregnancy uh, because all of a sudden Caesar Augustus issues this decree across the Roman Empire that everybody's got to go home to their place of ancestry in order to register for taxes. We'll talk about that next week. So Joseph and Mary have to leave Nazareth, right, and go down to what town down in Judea? Help me out. Bethlehem. And so that's where Jesus is born. Later on, they, um, they go to Egypt. And then later on, they do return to Nazareth. And that's where they raise Jesus in Nazareth. And we're assuming they raise him in the extension that Joseph built to his father's house. Now, this, this is cool. Because I went back and I read Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And if you guys remember, that parable uh, teaches this principle this ancient Jewish custom, okay, that during the betrothal period, the groom goes and he adds an extension to his father's house, and then when the betrothal period is over and it's time for the wedding ceremony, the groom would come to get his bride, but he would come at an unexpected time. He would come when the bride was not expecting him to come, usually at night with torches in hand with his groomsmen, and then what he, would do, what he would do is he would come and he would take his bride and then he would take her, guess where? Back to his father's house. And so they had the wedding ceremony, they consummate the marriage and hopefully they'll live happily ever after. So that ancient Jewish custom of how they did all of that, we can glean two things from that. Number one, okay, we know that the bride, whether she liked it or not, had to live with her mother-in-law, okay? And so that's why I said, hopefully they lived happily ever after, right? Because the extension was usually on top. It was a second story. Mom and dad live on the bottom. Uh, The new husband and wife live on top. But way more important than that is this. Check this out. The groom, that's Jesus, will one day come for his bride. That's you guys, the church. And he'll take us to his father's house that's exciting to me. You know why? Because that's our future. We have a, a, such an exciting future to look forward to, ladies and gentlemen. Now, now listen to the words of Jesus from John 14, one through three. If right now you can hear the sound of my voice, say amen so I know you're with me. All right, listen to your Lord. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Anybody troubled in the house today? Of course we're always troubled about things in this fallen planet that's temporary but he said let not your hearts be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house there are many dwelling places if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what's going to happen in our future. He's coming back for us. He's coming back literally. It's called the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. We don't know when it's going to happen. But the question is, will you be ready when your groom, the Lord Jesus, comes to take you? to the father's house. And so Gabriel goes to Mary's house, where Mary's living during her one-year betrothal, there in Nazareth. And it says now in verse 28, and having come in, okay, so Gabriel, the angel, walks in this house, can you imagine that? And the angel said to her, And by the way, this isn't one of those little angels like the pictures in your bathroom that are about that tall and plump with little halos over their head and little wings about the size of my hands and with high voices, hi, Mary. No, that's not it at all. This is a big, awesome, holy angel appearing before Mary. And he says in verse 28, having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice. Highly favored one. Everybody say, highly favored one. one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Go ahead and say, blessed are you among women. Go ahead. Okay, and so can you imagine a big, beautiful, awesome, holy angel suddenly appearing to you this afternoon while you're at your house? Mary must have been absolutely shocked. And did you hear what the angel called her? Yes, you did. I had you repeat it. He calls her highly favored one. And he says, blessed are you among women. So why was Mary highly favored? Why was she blessed among women? Here's why. Because of all the um, Jewish young women in the line of King David who were alive at that time, God chose her to be the mother of the Messiah the mother of the eternal God. And so, hey, if an angel can say Mary was highly favored, we should say Mary was highly favored. And if an angel can say Mary is blessed among women, we should be able to say that Mary was blessed among women. But as we're honoring Mary, we gotta be careful we don't go too far. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's your next point. Honor Mary. But don't go beyond what the scriptures teach concerning her. Amen. Now, the reason I'm going to spend the next five or so minutes on this is because there's a lot of people at Calvary Port St. Lucie that come from Roman Catholic background and you wonder about these types of things. And I get questions uh, from you, and so this is where we are in the Bible, so we're going to deal with it. What you need to know is that the Catholic Church has gone way too far in the way they honor Mary, and what they've done is they've added man-made doctrines to the Bible concerning Mary. Man-made doctrines that are not found in this book. For example, I'll give you several examples, okay? The Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now when you hear the Immaculate Conception, Immediately, you probably think, well, yeah, it's the Immaculate Conception of Jesus. Jesus' conception was immaculate. But that's not what the Roman Catholic Church officially is talking about. They're talking about Mary's conception in Mary's mother's womb. And so concerning that Catholic dogma, this is the teaching that was pronounced, listen, by Pope Pius IX in 1854. Okay, note that date, 1854, 1854. Here's what he said, and I quote. I went back, checked all the facts. I want to make sure sure I'm very fair here. But he said, and I quote, the blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular privilege and grace granted by God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was, okay, so Mary was preserved, exempt, from all stain of original sin. You hear that? Pope Pius IX, 1854, when Mary was conceived, she was preserved and exempt from all stain of original sin, or the sin nature that's passed on to all humanity from Adam. Well, there's a problem with that. What the Pope said, it's not found in here anywhere. We do not believe in the assumption of Mary, okay? Uh, the assumption of Mary is the Catholic dogma that when Mary died, and yes, Catholics believe that she died, okay, but when Mary died, they believed that she immediately rose from the dead and that she was assumed up to heaven, body and spirit. Okay, so here's what we know. When Mary died, her soul, yes, went immediately to heaven. Right? Absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. But her remains, her body, is still in a grave somewhere over in Israel. And it's awaiting the future resurrection of all the believers. We also do not believe that Mary is the co-redemptrix with Jesus. Pope Benedict XV in 1918 said, and I quote, To such an extent did Mary suffer and almost die with her suffering and dying son and to such an extent did she surrender her material rights over her son for man's salvation that we may rightly say that she together with Christ redeemed the human race. It's not in here. We also do not believe in praying to Mary. I was talking to a Catholic person just today and this is, this, they, this is what they said was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back and why they left. Praying to Mary. Millions and millions of people pray to Mary. Okay, now, now think about this. The, the reason that they do that is because they believe that as they give their petitions to Mary that she'll pray for them to Jesus and Jesus will be more inclined to answer their prayers because the idea is, what son doesn't listen to his mother? That's the thinking there. But there's a problem with that. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And so the only one who can hear the prayers of millions of people at the same time all around the world is somebody who has to be omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, and sovereign. And that is not Mary, and that is not the saints. It's Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's the only one because he's the eternal Son of God. And so all these ideas of Mary's supposed immaculate conception and her perpetual virginity, which we talked about last week, her bodily assumption that she's the co-redemptrix or that we should pray for her, again, they're man-made doctrines. They were added after the New Testament was completed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate that all churches need to get back to what is known as sola scriptura, Sola scriptura is a cry of the reformers. It's Latin for sola, alone, scriptura, the scripture. In other words, the Bible alone. What we believe is that this book alone, the Bible alone, is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And so we reject the idea of the the edicts of popes and councils in the last 2,000 years, especially the ones that contradict this book. And so if we, if all churches around the world ascribe to sola scriptura, if they really believe this was God's word and this is God's final um, um, measuring stick for all um, matters of faith and practice, if we really believe that, there wouldn't be anybody praying to Mary or praying to saints, there wouldn't be infant baptism that supposedly takes away original sin, it does not. Um, there wouldn't be this doctrine of the Pope's infallibility that when the Pope speaks concerning doctrine, it's ex cathedra in Latin. He speaks from the chair and it's on the same level as the word of God. There would be none of that because we would realize that this is where we go when we decide what is true and what is false. And so that's where we are in the Bible. And I feel a responsibility as your pastor to say this. Was Mary special? Yes. Was she the mother of the Son of God? Yes. Was she blessed and highly favored among women? Yes. Should we honor her? Yes. But don't go beyond what the scriptures teach concerning her because I think that if she was somehow able to be here today, she would be embarrassed and she would say this, "Don't look at me. Look at my son." Look at my son. And so now we go to verse 29. So Gabriel comes in. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw Gabriel, verse 29, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And then the angel said to her, do not be afraid. There it is again. Remember last week? 365 times in the Bible. Do not be afraid. That means, ladies and gentlemen, don't ever make any decision based on fear. Don't do it. Don't give in to fear in your life. Right now, if you're fearful of something, just know that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Speak the truth in love and let the chips fall, but don't be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great. (laughs) That sure happened. And it will be called, I want to really hone in on this, the son of the highest. The son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's very interesting. I don't have time to deal with it today. Well, we will deal with it this Thursday night during our Christmas Eve services because some in the church think that the throne of heaven, where Jesus sits now, is the throne of David, and it, it, it is not because verse 33 says, And he, Jesus, will reign over the house of who? That's Israel. For how long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we'll tackle that Thursday night along with Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But I want to focus in on verse 32. He will be called the Son of the Highest, literally the Son of the Most High God. Listen to that. The Son of the Most High God. That's a big deal. Never happened before, never happened again. Now, even though Jesus was Jewish, even though Joseph and Mary were Jewish, even though all the apostles were Jewish, even though the first century church down in Jerusalem in the beginning was all Jewish, even though the New Testament that you have uh, opened on your lap was all written in a very Jewish context, even though that's all true, The vast majority of Jewish people in the last 2,000 years have rejected what Gabriel said to Mary, that her son would be the son of the most high God. Now, thank God, Messianic Jews believe that Jesus is their Messiah and the son of God. Last I checked, there's like 350,000 Messianic Jews around the world. I think that's awesome. Their, Their number is growing in Israel. Jews that believe in Yeshua as their Messiah and Lord. But Orthodox, conservative, reformed, and other sects of Judaism do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, they're still waiting for the Messiah. My daughter and I went recently, a few months ago, to a Seder feast in a local Jewish temple, and that's one of the things, you know, they leave the door open because they're thinking that, you know, pray the Messiah will come. And so they're still waiting for their Messiah. Now, modern, most modern-day rabbis will say that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be a great man, but he is not going to be the Son of God. By the way, that's one of the reasons they reject Jesus, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Some of those modern-day rabbis will say that there is no proof, there is no evidence either either in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures or in the ancient writings of the ancient rabbis, there's no proof, there's no evidence that the Jews in antiquity believed that their coming Messiah would be the Son of the living God. And again, I want to set the record straight. You guys need to know that just the opposite is true. If you're taking notes, here's your next point. And that is that ancient Jews believed the coming Messiah would absolutely be the very son of God. Absolutely, undeniably, no question about it. Not just a man, but the son of God. That's what ancient Jews believed, no matter what the modern rabbis will tell you. Now, we know that, first of all, from God's word. That's, that's the authority, that's where we'll start. Please look at Psalm chapter two. This is 10th century B.C., Psalm of David. David says, this is a messianic psalm. It's about the coming Messiah. I have set my king, okay, this is the father talking here. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are, what's the next two words? My son in the Old Testament. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Thank God it's going to happen in the future. And the ends of the earth for your possession. Now, that should settle it right there. We should be able to move on because that's what's authoritative. That's God's word. And so God's word, whether you're talking about Psalm chapter 2, you guys should go back and read the whole thing. It'll get you excited about the second coming of Christ. So whether you're talking about Psalm chapter two or whether you're talking about this Thursday, Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, it's absolutely clear that the ancient Jews who lived in biblical times believed that the Messiah would not just be a great man, that he would be the son of God. But let me go on and talk about the Talmud. The Talmud, the Talmud is an ancient commentary on the, history, the laws, and the customs of the Jewish people. And a lot of ancient rabbis contributed to the Talmud. Ancient rabbis in several places in the Talmud, when commenting on that psalm, Psalm chapter two, they said that the coming Messiah would be the Son of God. So not just the scriptures, But ancient Jews who contributed to the Talmud in many places in the Talmud said that the coming Messiah would not just be a man, he would be the Son of God. And if that's not enough proof, let me now go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this is absolutely fascinating because the Dead Sea Scrolls are one of the greatest findings in all of history. Definitely the the best finding, greatest finding in the 20th century. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls, check this out, stay with me here. Okay, because here's why I do this on Sunday mornings. Here's why I go a little deeper. Because people outside who don't go to church anywhere, they have questions about the authenticity of Christianity. And for some of them, you're the only Christian they know. And so they're going to ask you for a hope, uh, for, for a reason for the hope that's in your heart. They're going to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Or why do you go to church or whatever? And ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough to say, I just believe. It's not enough to say, you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. It's just faith, man. No, we have a reasonable faith. We have a faith that can be proven. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls, man, if you don't know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, please listen, because this will encourage your faith. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd was, he lost his goat. He was trying to find his goat. He was up on the northwest side of the Dead Sea area in that cave area. And as he's looking for his goat, he's just wasting some time and he's throwing rocks down into the caves near the sea cliffs of the Dead Sea. And as he's throwing rocks, all of a sudden he hears not just a thump, but he hears a crash. What happened was his rock hit some ceramic pottery. And so they went later to find out, well, what's in the ceramic pottery? And what they found were papyrus and leather scrolls. Now, Check this out. Experts later on wanted to find out, well, how old are these papyrus and leather scrolls? You know what they found out? They're 20 centuries old. Now, how old's our country, the United States of America? Two centuries and some change. These scrolls that they found at the northwest end of the Dead Sea are 20 centuries old, dating back before the time of Christ. And so what they did over the next 10 years is they knew, man, this is like a priceless treasure. And so over 10 years, they excavated. And what they found in 11 different caves there around the Dead Sea, they found tens of thousands of fragments of these scrolls that, of course, are now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so from around 100 B.C., until A.D. 68, there was this group of Jews that lived. They were called the Essenes. The Essenes were a very devout, very strict, very mystical group of Jews, and they were purists. In other words, they believed that the, the temple over in Jerusalem, that's corrupt. Religiosity over in Jerusalem, that's corrupt. We don't want anything to do with it. The high priest, the Levites, that's all corrupt. Herod, he's definitely corrupt, So what they did is they left Jerusalem. They got on their donkeys and camels and they traveled 20 miles east to the northwest side of the Dead Sea and they settled in an area called Qumran. And what these Essenes, these ancient Jews, what they did is they recorded many documents and they copied many documents. And here's what's exciting. The manuscripts they stored in the caves around Qumran They contain copies and fragments, listen, of every Old Testament book in your Bible, except for Esther. Now, what's really exciting is that the copies of the Old Testament that they found in in the caves of Qumran, they found out that these copies are over 2,000 years old. They were preserved in these caves for 2,000 years. Now, I know for a fact that I'm not going too deep for some of you guys. Because this is what we as Christians need to understand. We need to be thinking Christians. We should know this stuff like the back of our hand. Okay? And so when they found every book in the Old Testament, except for Esther, preserved 2,000 years in these caves of Qumran, and they took those fragments, those manuscripts, And they lined them up with the earliest manuscripts that we already had of the Old Testament. Okay, those were dating back 1,000 A.D. Okay, so the earliest Old Testament copies we had were from 1,000 A.D. Everything else was lost. But now all of a sudden they find something that goes back 200 years before the time of Christ. There's a 1,200-year gap in between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the earliest Old Testament manuscripts that we had. And when they laid them side by side and they matched them up, they found this, that they matched 99% of the time. How many of you guys have ever heard it, or is it just me, oh, the Bible, whatever, it's been copied so many times over so many hundreds of years. It's filled with errors. Well, guess what? When they take the Dead Sea Scrolls and they take the oldest manuscript we had and we match it up, it matches 99% of the time. What does that mean? That means that the book that you have opened in your lap is the authentic Word of God, preserved for us, preserved. You can trust it. You can take it to the bank. You should read it every day. You should meditate on it day and night. You should make it become part of your soul because it will absolutely change your life. You should know this book so well that you'll look at the world through the lens of a biblical worldview instead of some kind of secular humanistic worldview. Forget the world. Separate from the world. Not bodily. Yes, we should be around people. Yes, we should be sharing our faith. Yes, we should be not like the Essenes separating out in the desert somewhere. But here's what I mean when I say separate from the world. That means that we don't sin the same way the world sins so that when they see us, they see that our life is absolutely different. And then when we actually get to know them and they start talking to us, they realize that we're not gonna say, well, just believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe, but they're gonna actually hear some sense coming out of our mouths concerning the authenticity of Christianity. And who knows, maybe we'll win the entire city of Port St. Lucie one day to Jesus Christ. But we gotta know this word. We gotta know this book. We have to know the word of God. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls, amazing, amazing. If you want to learn more about the Dead Sea Scrolls, then what you got to do is go to a, uh, some websites and find out more about them, read it, learn about it, okay? But the Dead Sea Scrolls did not just contain copies of the Old Testament. They also contained other writings, there were tens of thousands of fragments that they found in these caves that were preserved for 2,000 years. One of the fragments that they found has been dubbed the Son of God scroll. And I want you to check it out on your screen. Scroll fragment number 4Q246. He shall be called the what? They're talking about the Messiah here. That's not in your Bible. That's, that's Dead Sea Scroll. Scholars say that, was found, that, that, that dates back to 100 B.C. The Son of God scroll. He shall be called the Son of God. They will call him the Son of the Most High. He will judge the earth in righteousness. Another scroll they found in those caves of Qumran said that when Messiah comes, he's going to heal the sick. He's going to raise the dead and he's going to proclaim glad tidings to the poor. Guess what Jesus of Nazareth did when he came to our planet? He healed the sick. He raised the dead and he proclaimed glad tidings to the poor. And so according to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9, the biblical ancient Jews said Messiah is going to be the son of God. According to some of the Uh, ancient rabbis who contributed to the talmud they said the messiah is going to be the very son of god according to the dead sea scrolls before the time of christ they believed the messiah is going to be the very son of god and when jesus came on the scene and caiaphas the high priest said are you the son of god jesus said yes And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in great glory. And Caiaphas tore his robe and shouted, blasphemy. It wasn't blasphemy. Our Jesus is the very Son of God. And so, real quick, if you ever um, go with us to Israel, we're going again, March of 2017. That's just 15 months away. Save your pennies, okay? Okay. But if you go with us to Israel, I will take you to Qumran. We'll spend a couple hours there. We'll learn more about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We'll go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and we'll go specifically to the shrine of the book, and we'll walk in and we'll see, listen to this, almost the entire scroll of Isaiah rolled out from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Over 2,000 years old. It's right there. You walk into this room. It's elevated. It's all in glass. It's the, almost the entire scroll of Isaiah. We go and our, 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 um, our tour guide walks up and he just starts reading it in Hebrew. It's, a, it's an amazing experience. And so if you go with us, we'll float in the Dead Sea. We'll stop at Qumran and we'll learn about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now let's look at verse 34. So Mary said to the angel... By the way, are you getting the idea that this is not just some little fairy tale in some fanciful book? And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I don't know a man? I've never had sex with anybody. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the what? What? Son of God. And so how would Mary conceive the Christ child? Listen, not through sexual intercourse. No, what will happen, according to Gabriel, is that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, he's going to overshadow. That word overshadow means cloud. It's speaking like the, the, the Shekinah glory cloud of, cloud of God. And so that cloud is going to come upon her. We don't know if she's sleeping or whatever, okay, but that cloud's going to come upon her, and here's the miracle, and that the the Holy Spirit is going to take the divine seed of the eternal Son of God. The Holy Spirit's going to take the divine seed of the second person of the Trinity. Again, the eternal Son of God, not the created Son of God. The eternal one. He's always been, always will be. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has no beginning and He was not created. He is the eternal God. And the Holy Spirit took His divine seed and miraculously implanted it into the virgin womb of Mary. And so, if you're taking notes, there's your next point. Mary's womb became the Holy of Holies. Isn't that amazing? This is so much better than Santa Claus. And I'm not gonna diss Santa Claus too much because he actually existed, by the way, 4th century A.D. Nicholas of Meyer was a bishop and he gave gifts to poor people. But leave it to man to mess it all up and give us a fat guy in a red suit. But anyway, Mary's womb became the Holy of Holies. And so if Jesus would have been conceived by Joseph and Mary having sex, then what would have happened is Jesus would have inherited the sin nature from Adam like everybody else. Okay, you guys understand that we're all born sinners? Yes. Right? Romans five twelve: as by one man, Adam, sin, entered into the world, and death by sin. That's why we all die. And so death passed upon all men for all of sin. And so Jesus, he had no biological father, so he was protected. He was the divine seed If Joseph would have been Jesus' biological father, then Jesus would not have qualified as the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, this is why the world so often calls you and I intolerant. Right? Because we say there's only one way to heaven. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of God. Oh, you're such a bigot. Oh, that's so narrow-minded. Well, there's only one way. Everybody else who ever lived on this planet had a sin nature, and they do not qualify as our Savior, but one and one person only of the billions and billions of people who have ever been born on this earth, one and one person only had no sin nature. His name is Jesus, and he is our Savior. Look at verse 36. Almost done here. And now, indeed, Elizabeth, this is Gabriel talking to Mary. He's trying to bolster her faith. And now Elizabeth, your relative, remember, 60 to 80 years old, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. Mary didn't know this. She's like, what? Verse 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Okay, everybody, on the count of three, I want you to say verse 37 like you mean it. Ready? One, two, three, go. go. And so Gabriel the angel says to Mary, hey, Mary, if God can cause a child to come from a dead womb, as in the case of Elizabeth, then he can cause a child to come from a virgin womb, as in your case. Why? Because no word of God will ever fail. Because with God, nothing will be impossible. And I love Mary's response in verse 38. She says, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love her response because because her response was, hey, Lord, whatever you want to do, I'm yours. And there's your last point as the worship team comes up. Mary completely surrendered to the Lord. Now, before you pack up, okay, stay with me here. Mary completely surrender to the Lord? Here's the question for all of you. Will you, I mean, do you want to see a miracle take place in your life? Do you want to be used by God in extraordinary ways? Will you completely surrender yourself to the Lord? One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.